0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Adventures Less Traveled podcast. I want you to think about the craziest thing that you've ever done in your life. Now, as a way to gauge how crazy that is, think about the craziest story you've ever heard of. This kind of gives you a way to compare where you line up relative to the world around you. Just when I thought I heard it all, I hear about this guy rowing across the Atlantic Ocean from New York City to Galway, Ireland. This is about 3,000 miles and it took him 112 days. This makes him the first person to ever do this, and he did this all completely unsupported. His name is Damian Brown, and I am ecstatic to have him as a guest on the show. I'm John Schwenk, and this is the Adventures Less Traveled Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today, man. Really appreciate
1: it. Pleasure to be here, John. Thanks for the invite, and uh, yeah, excited to chat to you.
0: Yeah, of course, man. Now, what makes your story so unique, in my opinion, is that this isn't your first rodeo. You you consider yourself an extreme adventurer, and you have a multitude of one mind-blowing accomplishment after another. And these were all done way before this massive transatlantic voyage even came to mind. For one thing, you've already rode across the Atlantic Ocean in 2018, and you went from, you went east to west, which that trip, in combination with this most recent trip, makes you one of a handful of people who have ever done both east to west and west to east. And on top of that, you've also climbed all seven summits, which for those who don't know, are the peaks of the highest mountains on every continent. You've also completed the grueling Six day, 257 kilometer ultra marathon across the Sahara Desert, known as the Marathon Disables, which is oftentimes way hotter than 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And on top of it all, you started this crazy adventurous career as a professional rugby player at the top of your game. Now, we're going to get into this New York City to Galway, Ireland row here in a bit, I, I promise. But I think rugby is a really good starting point. Now, in your personal experience, what role did rugby play in your hunger for all these other adventures and accomplishments that you've undertaken? And, you know, what, what have you learned from playing at such a professional level?
1: So um very lucky to live my boyhood dream and um, come straight out of uh, what you guys in, in the States would call high school um into professional rugby now rugby was only uh, 5 years um a professional sport at that time it was in 1995 that it actually um a, a morphed from an amateur game to a professional game so there wasn't a huge amount of depth in um rosters if you want of players at that point is very different nowadays uh much more professional environments but what that meant for me was i was this like huge like um 18 year old in terms of my size and mass uh like it was about 280 pounds like six foot six so um I was kind of fast tracked into the system and given an opportunity to play professionally as a kind of 19 year old and kind of thrown in at the deep end and and it was either sink or swim and thankfully I learned to swim um pretty lively and I uh, was lucky enough to have this very kind of uh formative and fruitful career uh for a number of years as you said I played for like 16 seasons 17 years professionally uh and throughout the major leagues in Europe so there's three major leagues in Europe that is um the Celtic League, which is the Irish, Scottish, Welsh and Italian teams. And then there's the uh, English League and French League. Um, so I I kind of, I um, uh, would just say, I journeyed throughout those three leagues as very much as kind of um, a value of mine, you know, I'm very curious, like, so I always kind of wanted to see what um those other leagues were like and what life was like in like particularly France you know with the a distinctly different culture to the UK or Ireland so um it was a like rugby is a warrior sport um it is incredibly um, attritional it's 11 months a year between the preseason and the last game of the season is um roughly 11 months just under about 10 months and 3 weeks and then you get a 5 week break and then you're back into pre-season. You play about 30 to 33 games a year um every week basically during that period. So as you can imagine if you that do that over 15 years it just becomes, you know, you build up so many attributes and values within yourself just to survive in that environment like it's incredibly difficult and ruthless so uh you you build up very um uh powerful and um uh serving um characteristics and I suppose a lot of those have um helped me in my choice or in my uh journey into what is you might deem the next chapter in in my life or my the next kind of career which has become extreme adventuring uh, it's also a game of great values, you know. So uh, it's a game of huge amount of respect between yourself, uh, the other players, the other team. Even though, you know, you're trying to rip each other's heads off for 80 minutes, the split second that whistle goes, there's nothing but respect kind of given between the players. And of course, between the actual officials, the referees in the game. So, so you know, it alongside its... Um, warrior nature its culture teaches you great values as well and i like to think i absorbed a lot of them and used them in um in my kind of journey to be a professional or Sorry, to be a um, extreme adventurer. um yeah so then once i you know i had a, a plan if you want or at least i had a vision uh, uh for about six or seven years before i knew i was going to you know, at some point have to retire from rugby because uh, it, like most professional sports, has a very young lifespan. And, you know, the chances of you going past 33, 34, for 35 are, you know, very, very slim. And only a, a very few people kind of get into those later thirty the years in the later 30s. Um, so, yeah, I was very kind of aware of what I wanted to do. Uh, and that was just simply certain um experiences that i wanted to have so i was a very driven rugby player and i had always took massive responsibility for my own preparation uh physically and mentally because um, i felt i needed to do that to get the most out of myself and to maximize my time in the sport and my potential in the sport so throughout that um uh responsibility you know I was always researching outside of the sport and seeing what other people were doing uh, in their realms of physical pursuit or in their you know um, whatever they were doing so you know that was as kind of uh, broad a spectrum as people who were like strength athletes and bodybuilders or powerlifters And how they were getting stronger in the gym or, you know, using resistance training to build their bodies to be more robust to people in uh, extreme endurance challenges. Uh, And what they were doing with their bodies and their minds, of course, to um, explore their potential. So throughout that research, I came across certain things certain experiences certain events and uh and they just resonated deeply with me so much so that i kind of put them on a a a list of things i wanted to do post rugby post my rugby career but that was the most important thing to me that was my kind of be all and end all and that was what i wanted to absolutely um maximize my time within that sport and make sure I had little to no regrets leaving it. But once that was done, that was done. And I'd given it everything. And now it was time to move on to these other things, these other events, these other experiences. And and that's all they were simply at that time. So um, they were things like the Mountain de Sable, which is known as the world's toughest foot race. It's an ultramarathon through the Sahara Desert, self-supported. What that means is like you From the start of day one, you carry everything on your back you need for the duration, which is six days. So um, all your uh, clothing, all your bedding, all your cooking utensils, all your food, it's all in a backpack from day one. So obviously that gets lighter as you go along. And you're going through the Sahara, you know, Celsius wise, it's like 45, 46 degrees. Um, It was at least my year. So I'm not too sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's, it's well into the 100s. Um yeah, right. <laughs> um and there's no there's, there's not a modicum, there's not a speck of shade to be found. It's just it's all about um just learning to deal with that heat every day when it does eventually rise up. Uh and it works out so the the, the race itself is um is split into, like I said, six stages and it's over 250 kilometers, about 155 miles and the first three stages it's it's always around the same framework in terms of distances but the stages change every year so the first three stages are just under a marathon distance then the fourth stage is always a double marathon or close to a double marathon then the fifth stage is always a marathon and the sixth stage is a very short charity stage so so really it's condensed into five days the sixth stage is, is really just a uh kind of add-on, you know, for charity. It's not particularly part of the race. Uh so as you can imagine it's it's very extreme and uh, challenging. And uh, um that was one of the things that I really wanted to do and that I I'd, I'd actually watch a documentary on it when I was twenty two of three brothers uh from my hometown here in Galway who had completed it. And I just remember thinking I'm gonna do that someday. So that was the first thing I I um the first major challenge at least that I um set myself and that would kind of I really wanted to try and achieve post rugby. so I was 35 and I retired and um, being kind of institutionalized to that way of life in professional rugby you become uh, very used to setting yourself goals so I had goals lists um, of one year five year and lifetime goals and when I knew I was retiring I um, formed a new list of goals entitled before I am 40 I will, and then I had six or seven endings to that sentence. So one of them was before I'm forty, I will complete them out in this Adler. And then once I had done that, um, I uh, <laughs> I had this kind of foreboding, this um, kind of coursing through me because I knew that the next one, the next thing I wanted to challenge with myself was the one that had the most fear for me it was kind of the elephant in the room on that list and that was before i am 40 i will row across the atlantic ocean solo and unsupported now that's a huge campaign um it's uh you have to bring a lot of things together to make it happen uh not just the physical and mental preparation but of course the technical um upskilling uh learning like so i had no maritime experience so i had to learn all about you know, I didn't know what a hull, I didn't actually know what a hull of a boat was before I started I, I remember I went, I went out to the start of the, I was, I was going to take part in an annual race across the, rowing race across the Atlantic from Blagamere in the Canary Islands, just off the coast of Africa to um, Antigua. And the year before I had kind of targeted to start, I actually went out to kind of talk to some of the rowers who were part of that year's race I remember standing between two of the boats that were on cradles on the harbour before they'd been put in the water for the race and the the two rowers were in each boat and they were talking to each other, a guy called Gav and a a lady called Elaine. And I remember they were having a conversation and Gavin said to Elaine, they were talking about how they sourced their boat and their campaign to get here and how it was, you know, very challenging. He said to, Gav said to Elaine, Shirlane, sure, didn't you get your boat without uh, just the hull with no electrics? And I was standing in between them going, that's a hull. <laughs> that's how little I knew about maritime life. And, you know, the it's almost got its own language, you know, like all the terms for, you know, starboard, port, aft, cabin, you know, pitch pulling, like, rogues power anchors i was like oh, i was just like had no idea so you got to learn all about that um you got to do the fundraising side of it which is you know challenging to say the least and then there's a charity side raising funds for charity alongside so there was a huge amount to go into that campaign and i was very kind of nervous and overwhelmed and, and kind of on, on one on some level fearful of the whole um enormity of it and the the kind of unknown for me, you know, the the newness of all of certain parts of it. But uh I I kind of have wired myself to approach that feeling when it comes up for me rather than uh, avoid it or ignore it. So that's what I did. I committed to um uh post the Martin de Sable, I committed to um bringing that about and uh yeah I'm happy to say uh, I uh, after about what was it, 19 months of preparation, I I took off from the Canary Islands, and 63 days later, I got to Antigua in the Caribbean. So, a long, long answer to your question, but I, I think that uh, gives people a good um, insight into myself and my journey to that point, at least.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 really interesting your perspective because it's all mission-driven. Now, you touched on the fact that a lot of it was a lot of it was trial by fire. You didn't know as much going in. You didn't have as many mentors or whatever the the reason was. You went in with a a, a sense of naivety, for lack of a better word, and that naivety led you to learn kind of on the spot, drinking from the fire hose. So what did you learn from that row and, and how did you parlay that knowledge into the big New York to Galway row in terms of your preparation or Just in general, like what what takeaways transcended between the two voyages?
1: Yeah, so like at the same time, I I started um, at a point where, as you said, I was ignorant of um, a lot of things that I needed to learn. But uh, I had nineteen months, and uh, another thing that um, I am very versed in is physical and mental preparation. I've been doing it for. 16 years as a professional athlete 30 times a year like every um saturday we have a game then we have sunday off then monday morning i'm in again and i have a whole preparation week to go through physically mentally technically to prepare myself for a game and then i got to do the same again and again and again so you know the only difference now with extreme adventures is that the time frame is much longer you know so so i i know that inside and out i know my body inside and out i can prepare it to do an ocean row or i can prepare it to climb the highest mountains in the world the um the context of that preparation is quite different because the goal, the physical preparedness you need is different, but I know how to do it, you know? So so that was boxed away, that was fine. I didn't need to expend any particularly too much energy to prepare myself to do that. Of course, doing it, you know, is, is two, three hours a day, the actual fact, but, you know, I don't need to worry about that. So then I can put all my focus into, well, okay, well, what do I need to learn here to make sure at least on a minimum level, I am safely prepared to take on this, you know, massive endeavor, which was to row east to west across the Atlantic. As you said, it's uh, it's the most common um, uh, ocean route on the planet that's rowed. But to put that in context, more people have been to space or summited everest and rode an ocean so you still yeah the numbers are really small all the same you know they're still in the hundreds so uh yeah it was just a case of uh focusing then on okay well what's what's the stress points here like what do you really like or absolutely need to know first and foremost and then put an energy there and then once you felt once i felt i had some sort of competence, then i could kind of shift my energy or prioritize my energy into other areas not not taking my eyes off that other you know newly learned skill or whatever it might be piece of knowledge but like knowing that i kind of have a a time frame here that I gotta fit a lot of stuff into I can continue to learn about that, but I mightn't focus on it as a priority you know so it was just having good um management about where I put time and energy and i really a really kind of uh a point that blows people's minds but a really um interesting point in terms of this uh what we're talking about right now and something that will um might appear a bit funny to people, but I can't actually swim, right? So that that when people hear that, they're like, "What?" And you rode across the Atlantic. But the point here to make is, it wouldn't matter if I could swim. If I was separated from that boat, uh, unless I'm Michael Phelps and it's a calm day, I'm not catching it. Like so, you know, when people hear, "Well, why didn't you learn how to swim? You're going to row across the Atlantic," I say, "It doesn't matter like, because it wouldn't have mattered." Like if if there's separation from the boat you're in big, big, big trouble unless it's a very calm day because the boat goes one way, you go the other way. Um, So I didn't prioritize that at all. I prioritized, well, what is the safety procedure uh, that needs to be in place that means I don't get separated from the boat? And that was every time I come out of the cabin, I have a climbing harness on and I clip from the climbing harness a line into the boat. And I used to spend time actually visualizing myself, doing that in all sorts of conditions and putting in like massive levels of fatigue into the into the vision, of course, you know and and like all the different um five senses and 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 all the different elements that I might see, and just making sure that I was as prepared as possible, no matter what came at me on the ocean that I never ever forgot that one thing that was possibly the most important component of me coming home which is you know staying in contact with the boat and if i never lose contact with the boat you know the boat is your sanctuary it's the most important thing so rather than learning how to swim we can get to a point way before that where we never have to swim you know so that's the kind of stuff you need to be aware of and need to put your focus into and, and um, make sure you're unbelievably prepared around that
0: yeah it's funny i, I spoke with a, an ice climber uh, who. He always says that the number one rule of ice climbing is don't fall. Right. The number two rule of ice climbing is don't fall, or you will die. <laughs> All right, let let's get into this thing now. So the the big trip, New York City to Galway, Ireland. What are some of the basics? Just general overview of the trip. Like, what was the inspiration for this specific route? Like specifically New York City and and Galway, Ireland
1: yeah so the inspiration will start there, I think, because uh that was the genesis of the idea, of course um so when I arrived into antigua on at the end of my first ocean row um i i was I was hit with the remnants of an Antiguan team of four guys who would finish like thirty days before me, but the country itself, the little island, the country was still kind of buzzing from their kind of achievement, you know um and I thought wouldn't it be cool like to be able to row into your you know home country and the impact you could have yeah I I literally felt part of that impact through people coming up to me going oh you're the solo guy Do you did you know Nico and did you know John and did you know um uh what was his name Scott and I was like I met them like but I didn't really know you know, I, so I felt that kind of impact that they had and then um I knew that uh the North Atlantic was rowable, firstly, meteorologic meteorologically <laughs> um that the conditions were uh such that it was um possible by manpower now it was very, very difficult, as I'll get I'll tell you why compared to that that more southerly route east to west Um, what you've got going for yourself on that route is the trade winds so the trade winds are these kind of um, consistent winds that blow across uh, just north of the equator From uh, Europe to the Caribbean, uh, and that's how people sail across the ocean. They make use of those winds, and that's how, like Columbus, would have got across, um, etc. So, uh, in a rowboat, obviously that helps a lot because you're so limited in power. But whereas in the on the northern route going from west to east, there's no trade winds. Um, You've got all these localized kind of weather systems where. The winds can be going north, south, east, west, northeast, southeast, you know, just all over the shop can change very regularly. Um, so, of course, that makes uh, the um, the challenge of rowing that section of the ocean uh, much more difficult. So, um, but what I did know was that that was possible and that it had been attempted by, um, well, on. On research, then I found out that it had been attempted about uh, at that point seventy or eighty times, and was only a thirty four percent success rate. So, uh, you know, a huge um, puts it in perspective that a huge um, uh, yeah difficulty that it is. And then when I, um, but you know, I knew uh, so I knew it was possible. And then the the next choice was well, you can go from Canada. Or you can go from the coastline of the United States. Normally, people go from either Cape Cod or New York, or just a little bit south of New York. Uh, the reason I chose New York was because the very first ocean row ever was um, two Norwegians who who used to work in New York Harbor as dockers, and they decided that they were going to row to Europe um, to make their fame and fortune in 1895, 1896. Uh, Harbone and Samlinson and I just thought you know there's great connection of course between Ireland and um, America but particularly Ireland and New York and Boston and that area huge Irish uh, historical um, connection so I just with those two pieces of information I just thought it has to be New York and, uh, and New York particularly Manhattan is um, the hardest uh, of all the choices you could make along that East coast of North America because of the the difficulty between, you know, rowing down the Hudson, dealing with onshore winds, dealing with tides, dealing with currents, and then just dealing with the different angles that you have to, you know, come with. So you have to deal with wind on all sides of the boat. So doing different things, pushing you out to Long Island.
0: Now that intersection, I don't mean to cut you off, but that that intersection right at the tip of Manhattan Near Battery Park, the current kind of collides into each other, and that's like a really difficult part to row, if I'm not mistaken, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, all around there. And then uh, you kind of get down into the narrows and you kind of get spat out underneath the Versano Bridge if you time it right. We went under the Versano Bridge at uh, six knots uh a fast rowing an ocean rowing boat and what you would deem fast is about three knots like so it was like it was unbelievable we just used it because it just kind of funnels down there you know we hit the tide at the right time and spat us out um but then the tricky part is like negotiating the the harbour mouth and all the ships and then you're getting pushed from there's always kind of historically winds pushing on to long island so it's it's really difficult um uh and and that, that resonates with me. You know, I, I don't want things to be easy. I'm not looking for easy. I'm looking for challenge, real, genuine challenge, because that's where you get, you know, sincere uh, change, growth, paradigm shifts in your um, whatever, in your perspective, your outlook, your mindset. You know, you keep searching for things like that. You you get yourself into a very good place as a human. Um so, uh yeah, so I, I wanted, I wanted it to, I wanted, I didn't want any uh second guessing, no questions. I did it the hardest way possible from New York to Ireland in a classic ocean rowing boat with foot steering only. So that meant there was no autopilot. There was no auto steering system. It was in um a boat that was the same shape as the historical ocean rowing boats. And it had foot steering only. And it was from the hardest place you could do it. You know, you can't. <laughs> There's no way I can sit here now and go. Uh, but did I really? You know, it's just got. I've got a great, deep contentment because, yeah, it's ex- all on the line exactly. So then it was like I said, it was New York to Galway and Galway. Why Galway on the west coast of Ireland? Because my hometown, and I had the capacities to, um, uh, to uh, row into my hometown. And I always had a vision around that of like, you know, making a again like the lads in Antigua. Having an impact on my community, you know, the community I grew up in, the streets I grew up on, um, the people um I know and I don't know, you know, and then like having a, I think, you know, we communicate a lot of different ways as humans. But I think one of the most powerful ways is just through our actions and seeing somebody. I had this vision of people seeing me rowing into Galway after the fucking battle of a lifetime. like you know ragged you know emancipated um but like with a with a, a joy and a you know a, like a an air of just invincibility in me like that i just didn't give up against this monster which is the north atlantic and and that um and that was what i see as a kind of almost like a legacy piece for me in my life and that was a huge driver um to make it happen firstly and then to get across
0: yeah i, I... I can only, I can only fathom what it, it must be. I mean, mother nature is a, is a big old bitch. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just can't, I can't like fathom the idea of just having these massive swells, these waves just thrashing you around like a, like a rag doll, you know? Um, but, and, and I think you, you actually had a bit of a rocky landing coming into coming into Galway if I, if I remember correctly, right? Like the, you, yeah, I think you capsized or or something, something crazy.
1: <laughs> well, um, I mean, the whole journey was it was so, so challenging. Like the first. So if you think about my first ocean row, it was the exact same distance, about 3000 nautical miles. That took me 63 days. Uh, the first half of this race, this race, this crossing took me 44 days. The second half took me 68 days so like during that second half of the crossing i just kept getting hit by these you know headwinds and and adverse currents and getting sucked back and blown back the minute i dropped the oars uh every day like so i normally i'd row for either two or three hours in a block and then take a small rest So I'm rowing like three hours, say for example, and all I can think about, like if I you know, is that the second I drop these oars, I'm going backwards, you know, and there was days where I'd be rowing for three hours and I'd make three miles, and fifteen minutes after dropping the oars, I'd have given a mile back. And you know, the psychology around that is it's like okay, for a day, two days, three days, it's manageable. But for 50 days, uh, having to deal with the fact that you're going three steps forward, two steps back is incredibly difficult and demoralizing and dispiriting. And, you know, there was moments of absolute despair out there. Um, And then you had the aggressive nature. So of the Atlantic. So, as you said, there was um, actually five capsizes uh, during the whole crossing Uh, I had on day 24. um a a storm that had just been downgraded like 12 hours earlier from a tropical storm um uh pushed by the boat and i was on a thing called power anchor which is like a an anchor you use when the sea is too deep to use a traditional ground anchor and it helps you um against you know uh, helps you kind of hold your position against headwinds. Now you will still be blown back, but you won't be blown back as much as you know if you didn't use it. So it's it's this big parachute and it's on a line that sits out the front of the boat about 80-90 meters and in the parachute it holds like two tons of water. So it kind of works as as an anchor that way. So I'm on power anchor and when you're on power anchor, um Uh, just the fact that you have that bit of ballast like 90 meters away it normally keeps the boat upright in the water no matter what kind of and it keeps it in line with the waves so no matter what kind of conditions you're going through you should be pretty safe but i somehow managed to capsize three times just because the ferocity of the um the storm that we were going through. So that was the scariest moment of any of my ocean rows. Like that was the actually the one moment I would say, or the 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 hours I would say that I was the, the only time I was ever scared on an ocean roll was during that because um my my belief that I was uh safe and secure within the cabin was eroded through those capsizes. Like that's not meant to happen. There was some water ingress that got into the cabin during them as well. So I kept thinking, you know, that um, it could get in and fry the electrics and then it would um, mean that the expedition would have to be, I'd have to SOS and be rescued and all that. And that would have been, you know, obviously um, a nightmare. So yeah, those, (laughs) that storm was, forecast to last 20 hours and it actually um i had three capsizes in the first five hours and the next 15, 15 hours i just was all i w- was um doing was um focusing on waiting for number four waiting for that fourth size to come lying down in the cabin listening for the waves waiting for the, the sound that i knew would possibly be a breaking wave, the power of a breaking wave that would push me over. So that anticipation is really like hard. You know, it's really difficult. It's a real negative thing to to deal with, you know, anticipating something negative like that for 15 hours straight. They were like the longest hours of my life, you know. Um, But thankfully, it never came. Now, that didn't make them any better because you're obviously in this state of just waiting, anticipating something negative that never comes Um, and then as you mentioned of course there was the ending which was um, (laughs) unceremonious in its uh, reality so uh, you know I was was aiming for Galway um, harbour which is at the end of Galway Bay which is about from the kind of the western coastline it's about 20 miles or a little bit further about 30 miles actually in so, um, on the on the mouth of Galway Bay, uh, you have three islands called the Iron Islands. So, first thing I had to do was negotiate the Iron Islands, and I finally got some helpful winds that day. Like, they were probably one of the only time in in the last fifty days I had helpful winds. So there were southerly winds blowing up the up the north coast, uh, blowing north up the coast of Ireland. So what that meant was. It pushed me for about, you know, that last kind of 20 miles up the coast and then eventually through these this little sound between these two islands, which was amazing, like surfing down these huge waves, that this uh, heavy uh, wind, this southerly wind, which is about 30 knots, you know, so it was, it was significant, I had created. And then when I got into Galway Bay, I realized that well, now i got to turn east so I turned the boat east, so I had this southerly wind on my on my side of the boat, right, pushing me north, and because it was so strong, like 30 knots, and climbing, it just meant that uh, I didn't have the power to work against it, so I just kept getting pushed north, and north, and north, and of course, you keep getting pushed north, <laughs> there's something waiting for you, there's land, right, <laughs> so, uh, and the and just unfortunately, like it just happened to be a, a kind of a, a few different elements that kind of worked against me at that time. So you had that wind and when you're in really shallow water, like a bay, you get these really steep waves that the wind kicks up that are actually really dangerous for capsize because they're the water is so shallow, it kind of, it's able to pick up the, sorry, the the water's so shallow, the wind's able to pick up and kind of create these really steep waves like that people surf, you know, that's how people surf. And then they were just coming over, and then there was no moonlight, so it was pitch black. So I couldn't, all I could see was the kind of height of the wave, kind of the outline of the top of the wave above the uh, sky, the dark sky I just about make that up. So I have to keep my eye on that. That's on my left-hand side, and on my right-hand side, there's fast approaching land. And I'm rowing and rowing and rowing. So I'm in this hyper alert state, you know, and I am just keep getting pushed and pushed towards the land. And I keep trying to push the boat, like kind of angle it, that I'm pushing kind of um, south or, well, southwest, you know, against, away from land at least. Um, whatever I do, I just keep going north and north and north. So uh, the darkness kind of is, it's very hard to perceive where you are because there's like there's no there's no kind of you know your eyes kind of deceive you a little bit when there's no light to kind of give you a little bit more depth perception. So I actually thought I was further out from the coast than I was, and I got to a there's there's a new number of little kind of towns and villages on that County Galway, the the southern coastline of that, the coastline I was getting pushed against. And I knew them, you know, I've rode in that bay so many times. like So I was well aware of them and I was, I knew I, got, I was getting to a place called Furbo. Um, but I thought I was further out from the coastline and I'm looking over my shoulder and I'm well aware that there's some rocks that outcrop around Furbo. Uh, and sure enough, I'm thinking I'm going to see them kind of at 60, 70 degrees. And I look right behind me and there they are, like two of them sticking out of the water. So uh, I was like, "Fuck!" I had only seconds here to kind of um, react. So the boat's heading that way. I got—I try to flick it around 270 degrees. So I put one oar in the water and start rowing with the other one and flick the boat round. And then, so the nose of it is is pointed towards the surf, uh, and I I start kind of going towards these big waves, you know. But the nose has to be absolutely flush. Uh, to get through the waves, especially when they're that kind of strength, if there's a, a slight bit of the nose shown left or right, the power of the wave will just grab it and hit you and knock you over. And that's unfortunately, I had just a couple of degrees one way that just showed a bit too much of the side of the boat to the wave, the power of the wave. That just knocked me sideways and the rest of the power turned the boat over like 180 degrees. So what happened then was I flipped, so I flipped into the water and the oar on that side broke in the kind of underneath the boat when it flipped, you know, and I, at that point I was down, I was down to two oars at that point. So that, sorry, that, and then that meant I had only one left. So I was, I was kind of snookered then, you know, and, uh, 20 seconds later, just the rest of, you know, just the wash of the waves just pushed me up onto the rocks and, and that was my landing in County Galway. It wasn't exactly the port, which was another seven miles away. It was um the rocks on the side of the beach in uh in Furbo. Um but still it was land. it was county Galway, and um you know uh, that was kind of the goal at the at the start so uh yeah, and that was day one hundred and twelve of the expedition.
0: yeah, and for anyone listening or, or following along, Damien actually has his own podcast called Deep Roots. Which is really it's it's fascinating and it's very unique because he he does the he does like a daily recap or just kind of walks him through his thought process every single day of various adventures and the, the season three the one that just came out was about this row so if you want to get to know more of the day to day minutia of the trip that I highly encourage you to go give him a follow at the uh, the, the Deep Roots podcast.
2: Okay, day 24. Um, yeah, just fucking mental day. Uh, right now I'm in the middle of a storm. Uh, on power anchor. I've been since, uh, I've been for about I don't know, 17 hours. Um, I've capsized three times, Always was while I've been in the cabin here. Um, no interest in ever capsizing again the rest of my life but uh, it's probably going to happen um, a bit of a sitting duck here in these huge waves the uh, boat's been fucking decimated so it's ripped away over us uh, nearly lost the seat hopefully I was able to just get out in time and uh, before I lost that and secure that um and then some shit I left out there that I shouldn't have left out there, but there it's gone as well. Uh, jet boil, um, ten liter drinking container. Um, compass is gone, I ripped out away as well. Uh, I think this is the first time I can genuinely say on an ocean row, I'm a little bit scared. Not for my own safety, but more for the expedition's uh, success. Right now, I mean, hanging in there, right? But uh, so much water got into this fucking cabin on all those capsizes. Uh, I don't know like how much more the electrics can take of that. Uh, those three oars left outside are fucking like, crazy. Crazy secured and pinned down, but like I don't know the force of this fucking thing could rip something away. Um, 100 hours of it left, so, <sighs> Fuck me, uh, yeah, these will be very, very, very long hours. Uh, Chris told me mid afternoon it should pass, and right now it's 8 a.m. Catch song keeps coming into my head. If you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough. All right, let's we'll see we'll see how we go.
0: So this this journey initially started uh, as you and a partner, right? Yeah. So how did that all transpire, and um, how did it go from a two man journey to a solo trip? what was the sequence of events there
1: yeah so um this was always like after back of my um solo row in 2018 to antigua i kind of had that experience as a as a solo and i you know it, it wasn't appealing to me i wanted to challenge myself in other ways and one of those ways i saw was in a kind of leadership role like so you know, um, leading a team. And in this case, it just ended up being a team of two people, me and a good friend of mine, um, Gussie Farrell is his name. So, you know, we did the whole campaign together. We brought it together. We did all the fundraising, um, did quite a bit of the training together. Um, And the reason, uh, so I was the captain. I was the kind of originator of the whole project. And, you know, I was the one who was like, I chose Gussie to be my, co-partner if you want because um well we've been good friends for a long time and gussie has had his own journey like his own um uh experiences in the last few years that have kind of brought him to a place where you know he's looking to expand himself as a human so that story was basically he got to a place in his life where um his physical state was so poor that he had a very innocuous accident in his yard in um, in here in Galway. So he had a bus company and and simply um, he was moving buses in his yard, just parking them or whatever. And he said there was this kind of light steel bench uh, block in one bus and it had to be moved. And he asked one of the other drivers to help him and they both picked it up and he collapsed in um extreme agony or indescribable agony is what he'll say um and uh and that was um a rupture i was t9 t10 and t11 uh discs in his spine that 95 uh, percent severed his spinal column and left him paralyzed before his belt below his belly button down or above his belly button down so um he, uh, from there, he was rushed into hospital in Galway here on the West Coast. And then from Galway, he was brought up to Dublin immediately when they knew the extent of his injuries. And he had emergency surgery in the spinal unit in the Matter Hospital in Dublin. And, you know, uh, whatever, 10, 12 hours later, you know, when he, when he regained consciousness, um, the doctors, his surgeon told him that he had 5% chance to ever, um, ever, regain sensation below his belly button so you know his prognosis was um incredibly daunting and uh, bleak but you know he um he went on a journey where he just wouldn't accept it and uh, and he fought and like hell and about 6 weeks later from that point he uh he felt a twinge in the top of his big toe on his right foot and um, and then that was the start of him regaining sensation in uh, his lower limbs and eventually function in his lower limbs. And, you know, eventually relearning to walk and uh, regaining his mobility. And now if you saw him like you'd hardly notice, you know, that, you know, he has a slight kind of um what would you say, unusual gait. Like, you'd have to look very carefully. Like, so he's had this, you know, he had this amazing kind of um, story, I suppose. And uh, one of the things Gussie did post, a year after his accident, to uh, raise funds for the rehabilitation hospital that he went into in Dunleary in Dublin was to walk from where the accident happened on the west coast of Ireland all the way to Dublin on the east coast over five days um, and he raised like 70 or 80,000 euro for the, the hospital. Uh, and I joined, I yeah, amazing. And I joined him on three of those days. Um, and you know, it wasn't easy. I don't know if anyone's ever walked like you know, the whatever it was 30, 40 miles a day, but it's you know, takes its toll on you, especially if you're somebody who couldn't walk a year earlier. So I was just a great kind of uh respect and admiration for his efforts and his drive and his determination to get across um and, sorry not just to get across but of course to get where he got to so I asked him if he wanted to do off the back of that. I asked him if he was interested in kind of co partnering me as as uh, in um in this project to row from New York to go and he he took me up on the offer um now. You know, where he's come from um, and the, that spinal cord injury, you know, it's it's left him with, um, I suppose, limitations um, in his health um, that are kind of hard to see from a kind of, uh, you know, a first up level, a shallow level. And, uh, and I think that's kind of what caught up with him over that first week, 10 days on the ocean, because it was really hard like and i i pushed really hard over that first 7 days because i knew the importance of getting away from land um uh the the landmass um of basically the east coast of america um so that meant that even when the boat was only kind of you know even when we were faced with winds headwinds and that the boat was only going about a knot or even less than a knot I was just driving us to keep going keep going because it was it was ground and it was it was it was distance away from New York and that was absolutely paramount um uh, but it was really hard work and he just slowly started to break down and you know the reality of what he was facing into I think slowly started to hit him um and the difficulty of it physically and the fact that like it's on it's just constant discomfort like There's no escaping um, the, the discomfort on board. So it's actually, especially over those first seven to 10 days, it was more comfortable rowing for two hours than it was for resting because it was so hot during the day that the cabin would kind of boil up to over 100 degrees. And you couldn't have the hatches open because the waves were just a threat to the electrics. So that meant you had to lie in a cabin when you were meant to be resting and sleeping. You had to lie in a cabin that was firstly claustrophobic, secondly, 100 degrees plus, and thirdly had no airflow through it. So, you know, it was creating almost like panic attacks, you know, because you couldn't get your breath. Like it was like sleeping in a, a coffin nearly. So you when you're, when you're not rowing, or sorry, when you're, yeah, when you're not rowing, you're not really resting either. So that all caught up with him. And then came day 13, um... I, at about 6 a.m., he did the 4 to 6 a.m. shift, and then it was my, we were doing two hours on, two hours off at that point, and I came out, and he was just sprawled on the deck, like, and, uh, and there was all this, all the paraphernalia from the medical bag was around him. and I was like, "You yeah, all right, and he goes, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to worry about uh, my O2 sats, so he'd, he'd found the, um the oxygen saturation unit in the um, medical bag, and he he measured it and he said, oh, my O2 sats are at 82. And I was like, geez, 82. Like, I mean, I've seen some o- low O2 sats on mountains, but there's a reason, right? Because there's no oxygen there. At sea level, you couldn't be, literally at sea level, you could not be at a, a more oxygen-rich place on planet. And he's at 82. So I was like, well, that's not good. And then he explained to me that... um after his surgery in the matter, um, he had been rushed to ICU when um, his O2 sats had dropped below 90. And apparently for somebody um, in his condition after spinal surgery, that's a massive indicator for uh, blood clots in your lungs. So when I heard that, I was like, oh, fuck, <laughs> that's not good. I mean, there's we we can't even mess around here. Like, I mean... So uh, I was straight on the phone to our land support, um, a guy in the UK called Chris Martin, and then Chris facilitated a conversation with Gussie and a doctor, uh, and the doctor made the call straight away once he heard that and and a few other symptoms, his you know lack of control and his breathing, his extreme exhaustion. So uh, that meant that it was just well then it's a case of actually the Coast Guard facilitating a, a evacuation. So, um, by maritime law, the Coast Guard have the right um, and to send the nearest vessel or any vessel in our vicinity to aid in an evacuation or in a rescue attempt or whatever. So, um, there was a, a big tanker about five kilometers from us um, heading to New York, luckily, uh, and they rerouted to us. And then we had this mate like intense experience of rowing this little six meter ocean rowing boat up to this 250 meter tanker and then dropping the gangplank, uh And then like some of their uh, crew coming down and me lifting Gussie up off, uh, off our little boat. And, uh, and then um, he was, uh, he was able to get some supplementary oxygen and then over a few days, eventually back to New York and, you know, saw some, I uh, saw a doctor there and eventually got clearance to fly home to Ireland. So, yeah, it was, uh, as you can imagine, a huge blow at the time for the project, for both of us, for him, for me. Um, yeah, that was only day 13. We were only about 500. We had just hit the Gulf Stream, which is, uh, you know, this um, kind of large current that runs up the east coast of America and into the middle of the Atlantic and then it's a huge um part of this role like you're trying to get into the Gulf Stream and use that current to help you across at least halfway across the ocean. So we just got there and then of course we had this massive blow. So um yeah, yeah it was it was uh emotional and um yeah it was a sad way for him to end the, the project.
0: Yeah. What I find inspiring about that is even even if he didn't finish, like he still threw his hat in the ring. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about how many people are just terrified to do something like that. So the fact that he tried to me speaks volumes, you know, like and especially given his background and and the surgery and, and all of these obstacles and adversity that he faced like that takes some real balls (laughs) like i don't know how else to say it like that that takes some real gumption you know now on the other side of the coin i realize that completely changes the dynamic of the trip for you two sets of oars as an engine and now it's one so whenever you sleep you know it's a mile forward two miles backward so how did how when that after that point to keep going to, to keep facing mother nature, to keep getting thrashed around by all these waves. What kept you going? What was the feeling like once a- after that whole incident?
1: Yeah, I was, I mean, I was absolutely determined to get across. And as far as I was concerned, nothing within my control was going to stop me. So I didn't, it didn't even enter my mind that like some people said to me, so I had some connection with the, the real world if you want the outside world through my phone and through a uh, Garmin tracker on board and getting these messages geez can't believe you decided to keep going and i was like what i didn't even (laughs) it didn't even occur to me in fact the quite the opposite occurred to me once i kind of knew that gussie was out of here i was like well let's get him out of here like let's get him off the boat because i've got this fucking daunting um work amount of work ahead of me and i want to i need to see what that is like i need to get into it i need to go i need to you know start i I don't want to be here for another 12 hours drifting waiting for you know a boat or a helicopter to come like so i was absolutely um uh driven to to get going and to get to work and to start the, the process of completing this monumental workload that was going to have to go into uh, rowing the North Atlantic because I knew there and then like well you know this might be 3,000 miles on paper but it's probably going to be more like 4,000 miles because um, you're going to be blown back so much like uh, and there's going to be a really like and that's a it's a very daunting thing particularly when you know the shift in dynamic all of a sudden is like it's unexpected and you, like i never really considered it um a solo endeavor you know it was always a two-man thing so like there was this big shift there in terms of like coming to terms with that and processing um you know what now was in front of me uh and processing gussie's um kind of evacuation so so there was a lot going on, um, but uh, yeah, no, I was I was very determined to at least um, uh, get going and then to control what was within my control and do my best to get across to the other side.
0: So I just got like a, just a logistics question for you. How would you keep food for the whole trip? And the second question is when you slept, did you have to like strap yourself in or anything or... Like how did how did that work?
1: So um, the food is all dehydrated rations or um, shakes um, or smoothies and snacks like in the snack packs. About I think we had about four thousand calories in our snack packs for each day, and they were like things like protein bars, flapjacks, um, nuts, um, nut butters, things that were highly caloric um and uh, dense nutrient dense you know and then we had a great company from new zealand called radix nutrition who did all our um all our freeze-dried meals so they're real world class like they're they're taking i suppose expedition um foods to a whole new level in terms of the nutrient density that they put in and it's all for them it's all about performance so um so that was really aligned so I actually we actually had 10,000 calories a day um and uh 60 days worth of food each so when Gussie departed um and the reason 60 days because we We were, uh, uh, our goal, our aspiration was to um, break the world record, which was 55 days. So we were kind of treading a bit of a thin line there. But where I gave us a bit of scope was in the uh, quantity of calories. Like, so, you know, you could half that, you could ration that out and half your daily intake of calories and still, you know, perform to a pretty high level on the ocean. The reason, I took 10,000 calories was um, the way we had calculated with the team at Radex. It looked like we were going to burn about 13 or 14,000 a day um, just by rowing 12 hours a day, you know. Uh, So when Gussie departed, that meant I had like 100 days worth of food, roughly 10,000 calories a day. Uh, So I was well stacked for food. (laughs) I didn't have to really worry too much about that. Um, And the sleeping thing... So that there's two cabins on an ocean rowing boat. You have the small, so you have the big cabin, they call it the stern cabin at the um, back of the boat, which is um, where all your electrics are, where your desalinator unit is um, and where your bed is. And it's basically, if you looked into it, it's basically just a, a thick vinyl mattress um, the whole way. And that's your bed and, and that's what you sleep on. And if you kind of get knocked around, which happens regularly, um you get knocked around you know there's there's no real way to brace yourself. You get used to in storms and that kind of um uh, putting out your hands really quickly or getting your legs up to the roof and bracing yourself um but often you know during the night um you'd be woken up when you'd be thrown against the side of the cabin and you'd clip your head or an elbow or a knee or something so because you slide on the vinyl, you know, so or you're, at least your sleeping bag slides on the vinyl. So, um, yeah, you, you, you'd be amazed that you can actually sleep in the conditions you sleep in, like, uh, but it just comes down to the exhaustion at the end of every day, physically and mentally, like, because you're, you're in that kind of hyper alert state of survival, if you want, of, um, yeah, so, like, when you do close the cabin hatch and you do secure the boat and you switch off, you actually you just crash like and there'd be waves booming off the side of the boat and kind of reverberating around the boat and somehow you stay asleep like it's it's amazing. Uh and you'd be hit you'd like you said, you'd be kind of slid across the the little bit of cabin and you'd hit your head and okay, you'd wake up a little bit, but you'd just fall back to sleep straight away. Like <laughs> you're just so tired.
0: The- that definitely takes some getting used to, for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> so when you, when you take a step back and you look at all the adventures you've undertaken from the 20,000-foot the view, how would you say that this particular adventure compares to all the rest in terms of things that you've learned, you've taken away from it all, transferable skills, the sense of accomplishment? Like, how, how does it compare to all the others?
1: Well, it's definitely in terms of everything I've done in the last seven years, it's by far the hardest thing, you know, and uh, I, you know, I I find it difficult to think that you could find much more harder things to do um, on the ocean or in the world. Like it's just your everything is your responsibility. Like this is an independent ocean row across the North Atlantic. The second you leave land, You've got not there's no framework around you. There's nobody watching if they don't want to watch. Like, you know, if you don't have somebody on land support, like, there's literally nobody there and you have responsibility for everything. And then you've got this just relentless monster waiting for you. It's just playing with you the whole way along, you know, and you've got all sorts of, you know, headwinds and counter currents and storms and eddies. And uh, it, it is just like at times, it just grinds you down, and i like i I know I have a very strong character, I know I have a very strong mind, I know I'm very value driven and those values are thick, you know in terms of their um solidity around me and their power and Everton was just eroded to a tin sheet, like it was just it it became so like that the ocean just every day the relentless challenge the the enormity of the workload the difficulty of one two hours on the oars and you know kind of understanding what's coming like it just it just wore me down to moments of despair and i just i'm not too sure like i'm very of course i'm very um satisfied and, and proud that i was able to um accomplish what i wanted to accomplish but like really it's hard for me to see <laughs> ever ever anything ever been as difficult as it like that's the kind of the depths i had to the depths i found myself in uh and the, the place i had to go into to drag myself out of you know in, in terms of uh um states so uh it, it, yeah it, it's 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 undoubtedly the hardest thing and um uh what i what I feel it's given me above anything else, like so I do these things not for not to particularly access new insights, it's to deepen and broaden uh values and um characteristics and human endowments that we all have, right because you know, the, the deeper your value system and your relationship with it and your connection with it, the better, the the broader and deeper your self-awareness, the better. Right. And that's what you, I get from these things. So mostly what I get is a kind of reinforcement and a deepening, a reinforcement of my the way I live my life, and my philosophies, and then a deepening of my character, of my values, of um my the tools that i i need to be able to use on the ocean the mental tools and all that uh, and and um, why is that important because when you come off the ocean you're 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 literally a better human a better version of yourself you know you've expanded yourself uh and i've found over the last 20 years that to be a, clearly a very addictive uh way of living uh to almost make yourself to drive yourself to be more human you know to cut away the crap that 21st, seven, 21st century culture um uh imposes on you you know or like nearly by osmosis kind of drips into you so um yeah so that's that's where i feel i got like i got a I got a broader, particularly a a broader uh, look at two things. So um, perspective on what I have in my life and what's great about my life and a gratitude for that. And uh, those are two beautiful things to come from uh, living this way and pursuing this way of life.
0: You know, it's really interesting. You set a bar for yourself. You set something that is so high that you come back to society, you get reacclimated to everything and anything that pisses you off on a day-to-day basis, you can always kind of fall back and be like, you know what? That's really not as hard as rowing by myself and getting capsized however many times or, you know, and you always have this like exceptionally high bar that you can always fall back on that just Always serves as a frame of reference to give you a reality check or give you a kick in the ass when you think life's not going your way. And on top of that, it's a bar that you set. So you try to keep raising the bar, and that's exactly what you've done throughout your whole life. You started as a rugby player. There's a lot of professional rugby players. Not a, not you know relative to the population, it's a small sample, but there's still a lot of rugby players. Now of the rugby players how many of them did all seven summits of that subsample how many you know rode the atlantic ocean twice <laughs> and and it and it keeps going on so you just keep setting this higher and higher bar and i think that's really important for people because when you set such a high standard you really don't stress over just the little trivial bullshit of your day to day you know you can actually go about your business and you get angry on the road because of a dumb driver. You just be like, all right, you know what? It's not that bad. I've been through a lot worse. And each and every adventure that you, you undertake each and every bar that you set gives you some different perspective. It teaches you something different, right? Like when you went to Afghanistan, you learned about different cultural aspects. When you did the solo row, you learned about your physical limits. When you, you know, when you did the the seven summits, you learned about like the forces of nature and with the row as well. You know, when you played rugby, it's all about like, how can I work with other people and in, in, in accomplish some kind of communal goal? Right? So it's all of these different things coming together, but they're all raising the bar in each and every single like instance. There's a lot that can be learned about yourself, but there's also a lot that others can learn from you. So I don't know how much of a philosophical person you are, but you know, at some point, you're going to be in the history books, right? So, do you ever consider your legacy or how you want people to remember you by?
1: Uh, yeah, like a not not like I don't I don't sit down and you know consciously you know put together a thought process around it. I think there's a there's an a subconscious part to me. Like if I was to analyze my Um, my actions and my behaviors I'd be like you know well (laughs) you're not just doing it for yourself like you know there's you know you're you're standing out the hatch of an ocean rowing boat in basically storms trying to upload a podcast that doesn't really need to be uploaded for a day or two but you're doing it. Why? Because you want to share it. Well, why do you want to share it? Because you think there's some value in it for other people. It's not, and I'm not on an entertainment level. It's on a way of here's a guy living his life authentically, trying to um, uh, realize his potential, uh, and giving us the inside track on on that. And you know on. Bearing himself through the hardship, through the difficulty, through the genuine challenge that he's gone through, you know, bearing himself, you know, vulnerably, um, and he doesn't have. Well, I don't have to do that. So why am I doing it like that? Because, of course, I feel a, a larger duty on some level to uh, expose this way of living that has given me so much, has given me deep sense of like um, contentment has given me huge sense of fulfillment, accomplishment. Um, and just, I just feel like, I feel, you know, I'm not the same person I was two years ago. I'm definitely not the same person I was five years ago, you know, and not in big ways. I've just continually searched to kind of deepen myself as a person. And, and that's all been true. Uh, a way that is almost shunned in life through hardship, through difficulty. Um, and yeah, so uh yeah and i just want to do that on a very uh authentic in a very authentic way because i feel that that's the best way to do it you know so um yeah so i i do uh i do feel that there's certain uh a certain duty on me and i um to to share that because um simply because, you know, I, I like I found a way of living that is as far as I can deem incredibly powerful. And I feel like all I hear about is mental health, this mental health, that Um and I'm like, Fuck, people are really, really struggling. Like, you know, and well, maybe, you know, if I share what I do, one less person might struggle or somebody might get over the fear that is blocking them from doing something that their intuition or their inner compass is telling them is something they need to do with their life you know so many people are paralyzed by fear and they go to their grave with their song still in them like you know and I'm like fuck that let's just you know it's just just too much to gain from this beautiful experience like uh this amazing planet uh and if I can share what I do and give somebody a modicum of um, drive to do w- what is important to them, or what is a deep kind of voice within them pulling them a certain way. Well, uh, that's that's amazing, and that's enough.
0: You know, I I saw on some post of yours somewhere on your in your boat, you had a Bruce Lee quote, and it said, "Don't pray for an easy life, pray for the strength to endure a difficult one," and. You inspire so many people, and it's really fascinating hearing how your mind works. You really truly embody the warrior spirit, the adventure spirit, whatever you want to call it. Like, I hope you realize how many people you inspire, and that's a that's a beautiful thing, because you're trying to get people to be the best versions of themselves by leading by example, and you got one goddamn inspiring story, man, and. I'll be the first to tell you like you got one guy right here who's super inspired by everything that you've done. So I, I really genuinely truly thank you for coming on the show and giving your background and experience. This has been fantastic.
1: (laughs) Well, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. And thanks very much. I love that quote. I actually had it above my, the exit, right above the hatch cabin, uh, on my first ocean roll and I, I think it's a great philosophy and yeah excellent
0: well thanks again and thank you everyone thanks for tuning in see you next time
1: thanks john thanks for having me